Olaso. I came here again to help others in the Dharma, not just to have a solitary retreat, otherwise I would have gone someplace else. So, all is good. So then we'll begin with the loving-kindness practice, and I'd like to respond first of all to, and I'm going to front-load this, so I really will speak very little during the meditation, which then is hopefully something of a compromise. For those who would like silent, it will be a lot of silence. Um, a number of people have raised this very legitimate qualm or concern in the, these more discursive practices of the four measurables, and that is, number one, it can, it can, after a while, we've been here for, what, five and a half weeks now, it can, it can start to take on a little bit of, how do you say, repetitiveness, like playing an old movie. Oh, now, okay, now, who's, who's, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, been here, done that. And so it can kind of start losing some of the vitality, the vividness, and so forth. So there's an issue. It's a, it's a real concern. And you can imagine, here we are engaging with other sentient beings, so we're getting a lot of fresh input of real live sentient beings, fresh ones. You can imagine if you go for a six-month retreat, a longer retreat, all by yourself, and you don't see anybody, and you're practicing loving-kindness and so forth, then it's going to be really easy to start playing some old tapes. You know, bring out number 13, you know. <laughs> and so then it can get really quite flat as you're just playing a home movie, and we all know the quality of home movies. So how to move beyond that? That was one qualm, and there's an adjacent qualm, and that is that it's so discursive, and we're, we're in this wonderfully serene environment, one really created for the practice of shamatha. Again, that, that construction noise, will, that will soon be gone. Um, but this was one really created to try to, and Klaus really set it up, that all of the outer conditions for an environment for practicing and achieving shamatha, we'd have it here, and lo and behold, he can't control what happens across the street on any somebody else's land. Um, but there it is, he's done a marvelous job. And so, so when this is really strongly a shamatha retreat, then to bring in discursiveness can be just more a bit of agitation, a bit complexity, and so forth and so on. So what I'd like to suggest here is that two points, and that is in terms of the movie, the, 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 the problem, the potential that might become a little bit stale, I think that's the word, stale, not fresh, is to keep your eyes wide open in between sessions. Wide open means really attentive to sentient beings. Even, I mean, I've been in long, solitary retreats up in the desert. I hardly saw anybody for six months, right through the winter, so it was really pretty deep solitude. But still, there were lizards. You know, there were creatures out there. There were birds and so forth. There were sentient beings. And so engaging with those. Um, and here, of course, walking around, we have a lot of wildlife on the, on the, on the ground, fair amount up in the trees, and then the staff, if you go out walking. And that, in other words, you're going to encounter a lot of sentient beings, and each time it's fresh. You never, you never know exactly how that encounter is going to turn out because it's all impermanent, and this is not a replay, not a replay of anything in the past, including every time we go to the kitchen. It's never yesterday's people. It was, it's always today's people. So to keep on adding fresh what's it, yeast, fresh yeast to the practice, by drawing in your recent experiences, or maybe you've heard something uh, just about what's happening in the world, try to, re try to keep it fresh that way. And then also, all of us have been here, uh, alive for at least two times 12 years, and so that means we've, we've met a lot of people, we have a lot of memories. Uh, and so invite more and more sentient beings into, into the practice, and that can keep it fresh. Okay? And then, of course, all of this, especially the four measurables, is very much a preparation for going out into the world and manifesting these in our lives in active interaction uh, with, other, with other people, sentient beings and so forth. 
as Matthew Ricard so well said, it was just, he phrased it so well. He said, these practices are designed to make you poised to go into action. So loving kindness, when you see someone who is in need of help, or you could, you could contribute to their happiness, you're just already, it's kind of like, you've already, you're already, okay? Um, and likewise for compassion, of course. You see somebody in need, somebody suffering, and you're just already poised. It's like they're, at, they're answering the question that you've already asked, you know, and so then you're ready to engage. So there's that. And so all the more reason to cultivate these when we're in this wonderfully serene environment uh, so that we'll have a good familiarity, good friendship with these four measurables when we venture wherever we're venturing to from here. So that's one point. In terms of the discursive point, this is a little bit of repetition, but it will be fairly short. And that is, no doubt about it, these four measurables, like bodhicitta meditation and so forth, Donglen practice, these are discursive practices. They are not just placement, they are discursive. Just to reiterate something enormously important, for all four of the four measurables, the object is sentient beings. It's so often said, oh, what are you meditating on? Meditating on loving kindness. What are you meditating on that for? Like taking out loving kindness? Loving kindness is very interesting. It's about uh, three feet long and uh, weighs two kilos. And if you're meditating on loving kindness and that's the object of meditation, I really like my loving kindness. I think it's really great. And I'm going to think about it some more. I might even practice it one day, but for the time being, I just want to meditate on loving kindness. You know, so the, it's the cultivation of loving kindness, having sentient beings as the object. And just to reiterate this point as well, it's so easy because we're, we're Western language speakers here, I think, as far as I can remember. Yeah, all, all of us, all of us. We're Western language speakers. And so the word love comes you know, very readily to mind when we think of loving kindness and compassion. And at least in English, and I think the other European language that I've had a little bit of engagement with, these are emotions. They're often presented as emotions. And, and I'm not at all saying they're wrong. Each language can define its own words as they wish. You know, the language users define the words that they use. Um, but it really is important to recognize that loving kindness is not an emotion and compassion is not emotion in the Buddhist context. Other people have their own context. That's fine. So we have a lot of habituation of compassion as a feeling, as an emotion, and so forth and so on, all very fine, but that's not the Buddhist view. It's an aspiration, and that's why Matthew Ricard was so right when he said when you're cultivating this aspiration and then you see an opportunity to fulfill it, then you go right for it. You consider, though, this, this is not just mincing around with words. It's not just, okay, I'm a scholar and I really am picky-picky about words. It's really not that at all. If one is cultivating loving-kindness and what you're really after is an emotion, a feeling, and likewise for compassion, then that's where it culminates. You, get, you arouse that m emotion, and you're using the meditation as a prop. Like, may all sentient beings you know, be blah, blah, well and happy, or whatever it may be. We're using that as a prop to cultivate an emotion. And then when it comes, oh, oh that feels really good. A little bit higher and to the right, please. Oh, oh, oh that's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, loving kindness is really good. I like it more. I like it more. <laughs> you know, it's just a feeling. And if, it's, if you're going in for the feeling, that doesn't prime you. That doesn't prime you to act in a loving way or act in a compassionate way. It just primes you to, I want to have more of that feeling. Three doses, make it snappy. <laughs> you know? So it really is it's an important difference. Now, 
Again, to clarify, I know it's obvious, but I'll say it anyway succinctly, it's not at all to say that in the Buddhist cultivation of loving-kindness, there's no emotion involved. Of course there is. But that comes along, it, it's kind of, it's, it's being carried by the aspiration. It's being carried by the aspiration. And likewise for compassion. And think, and by the way, I don't really want a Porsche, but I'm just using this as an example. If somebody gives me a Porsche, I'm going to sell it. So, but imagine though, so now we're play-acting, right? Imagine, because I've ridden, I, I've been in the passenger seat in a $300,000 Porsche. I know what it's like. It's a very smooth ride. And so, you know, so, but imagine, oh, that was so cool. I wanted to be in the driver's seat. And I think I could save up my money. I just need to keep meditation a bit more. Especially renunciation, people like that. And then I can get the money together to buy my Porsche. And I want a red one or a yellow one? Oh, a red one. Bright red, bright red, black upholstery. And I think I want some flames on the side. That'd be really cool. Oh, I, oh, oh that'd be so cool. I think they're called chick magnets. It's a chick <laughs> magnet. There's no other way in the world I'm going to get any chicks, but if I had a Porsche, maybe. Chick magnet. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and so what I'm cultivating here is an aspiration, right? But you saw the sappy grin on my face. That's an emotion. I could, maybe I could in this lifetime save up enough money for a Porsche. And a big, happy smile. So there's an emotion there, an aspiration, but the, the emotion is tagging along with the aspiration. Right? And that's what craving often does. That's why it feels good. Because it brings that kind of happy anticipation that you know, I can get it. So it's similar. Might all sentient beings find happiness in the causes of happiness? Uh, and there's a, a joyousness arising in that anticipation. Why couldn't they? Why couldn't they? So very clear, aspiration. The emotion comes along for the ride, but don't invert it so that you just get the emotion and then maybe no aspiration at all, except for I want to have more of that emotion because it feels really good. Okay? Final point. We're going to go into our classic sequence here for this week. Loving-kindness directed towards ourselves. The Buddha recommended it, so there's nothing iconoclastic about doing this. And I've just put, given a little bit of form, shape, but everything I think, I've seen no, there's nothing incompatible with Buddha Dharma here. But as we start to envision, you know, in, as we start off with the very first phase, envision our own flourishing. We've been practicing shamatha here for more than five weeks. You might just ask yourself, would you like to achieve shamatha? Have any appeal? Useful? Would you like that? Arouse some aspiration for that? Well, we'll arouse aspiration overall where it really becomes real if and only if we think it might be possible. So I'm not going to aspire for things that I just think are flat out impossible. Why should I bother with that? Waste of time. Why not give myself a target that's at least feasible, right? But is it possible for the likes of us, you know, to achieve shamatha? Well, is it possible that we might find a conducive environment that would support us long enough? Because without that, a number of people here know it's awfully hard without the conducive environment. And then could I, could I click those off? Contentment, having few desires, totally abandoning the OCD pertaining to desires, um, you know, all of the internal and having few activities and few concerns. Having few concerns and few activities. If you're in a full-fledged shamatha retreat and you want to achieve shamatha, don't clutter it up with a lot of stuff. Keep it real simple. 
So could I fulfill those? Could I fill the outer prerequisites? Could I fulfill the inner prerequisites? And this is where William James's statement comes in, and it's really poignant, it's powerful, and it's re extremely relevant. And that is, there are some things that are true, that, they, that become true, that actually happen, only if you believe in them first. If you just take a re and say, well, I'm a realist, frankly, I don't know. Who knows? Where, is it, where, where are you ever going to get any inspiration? If you just say, I don't know whether I can achieve Shambhat or not. What do you think? You think I could? But you don't think I could, huh? Yeah, you're probably right. You might be right. I don't know. Um, what's on television? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure about television. I'm really actually quite sure. And so if one just rests in realistic ambivalence, you'll be in that ambivalence forever because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any release mechanism to get you out of it. So unrealistic belief, that's silly, of course, but you're looking at the parameters of the feasible, what is the possible, and it's resolve. It's belief. How about, how about shamatha? That would be really good. Of course, you can lose it. But if you got to shamatha, the base camp of shamatha, and then launched off to the peak, almost like in search of a wish-fulfilling jewel that's on the top of a mountain, and the peak is to achieve bodhicitta, spontaneous, genuine, authentic, uncontrived, and to seal that with vipassana. Could I actually reach the path in this lifetime, seal it so it's irreversible, and then in all future lifetimes, always be on the path? Whether it's one more lifetime and I'm a Buddha, or three million lifetimes, whatever it is, but just know that it's only going to get better and better and better. This is the point that Shantideva makes in the patience chapter, I'm pretty sure, patience chapter when he's, he's looking at this prospect of maybe spending an awful lot of time in samsara, you know, as a bodhisattva. And then looking at it and I say, but wait a minute, if you're a bodhisattva, then you're just going from bliss to bliss. It just gets better and better and better. And every single lifetime, it's always a bodhisattva. And it just gets better and better and better. So if it's a long time, it's like a really good long novel, like War and Peace, you know, that just goes on and up. It's really well written. I mean, haven't you, have you, haven't you, I have, haven't you read some novels where when you're getting to the end, you're just dreading it, like, oh, no, it's going to end. I think a lot of the Harry Potter fans, I'm not one of them, I think it's, it's, it's fun, but I think when they got to, what, the seventh one, wasn't it, seven? They, oh, no, don't end, don't end. Let, let Harry Potter grow into a grandfather and have little Potter kids. You know, <laughs> keep the story going, you know. Because it was a good story. I mean, obviously, he's a very extraordinarily skilled writer and fantastic imagination. But people really were sad when it was over, you know, and they'll be sad when the final movie comes out. Well, that's because it's a really good movie. For people who like that kind of movie, it's a great series of movies. And so if that's good for Harry Potter, it should be good for the Bodhisattva. If it's a good movie, then what's the problem with it being a really long good movie? Right? So that really is a Bodhisattva view. And then the Vajrayana view, the Dzogchen view, is... Actually, this is fine for me. One really fantastically long movie of being a bodhisattva, lifetime after lifetime. Every lifetime virtue, every lifetime meaningful, every lifetime being of service, deepening my own practice. Boy, there's just no downside there. But in the meantime, here I am with very limited abilities, very limited in all respects, still have mental afflictions, and there's this ocean of sentient beings in desperate, urgent need of help. And wouldn't, out of then just great compassion, I think, even though it would be fine for me to take kind of a leisurely route 
three, three countless eons, whatever. But for the sake of sentient beings, I think they really... Do you have a sense that there's maybe an underpopulation of Buddhas right now? We have seven billion people on the planet, but do you have a sense that we have the proper proportion of Buddhas and sentient beings? My sense is that at least anything manifesting in the world is a little bit skimpy. Manifesting in the world. I don't know how many, how many Buddhas there are. But manifesting Buddha qualities, you know, really being uncloaked. Whoa, that one's really a Buddha. My sense is I think we're a little bit short on Buddhas. So maybe we should have more. In which case, that's where the urgency comes from. That was my first final point, right? <laughs> my final, second and final, final, final point. Dujum Lingba, he made a very deep impression on me. Right towards, some of you received the commentary on the, on, on the on opening section, the first 30 pages or so, when he's setting up the whole text before he goes right into shamatha. And he's setting up the whole text knowing full well that this is going to be a text, about 400 pages, that covers the entire path to enlightenment, including rainbow body, and it describes exactly how to achieve it and different levels of rainbow body. And then 13 of his disciples achieve rainbow, rainbow body. And this is only in the last, well, last before last century. <coughs> Make the comment right towards the beginning about confidence. It's interesting, this, this dharma, this mind dharma, mind treasure came out in the... 1865 or so, give or take a couple of years, a long time ago. Um, and he raises the issue of confidence, and that is looking at this vast path and thinking, am I really up to it? Is, isn't this maybe too high for me? I mean, that shamatha is, this is settling the mind, this natural state, that's not so easy. And then that's vipassana, and that's, that's pretty awesome. And then there's state regeneration completion, which I may go, or tektrit and turkel, Oh, I'm not sure. That's that's really this is this is heavy duty practice. This is really this is for really incredible people, and I'm not one of those people. I'm not sure I'm really up to it. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to do more just preliminary practices or other practices because I'm not really sure I could succeed. And Dujum Lingba comes, and that is this is his mind derma. So it's Samantabhadra, Padmasambhava, Dujum Lingba, and he says, if you've encountered these teachings of the Vajra essence. If you really encounter them, you don't just bump into them, but you encounter them, you engage with them, then the only way this would happen is if you already have an enormous amount of momentum from past lives of already being very, very familiar with all of the, the more fundamental or basic yanas or spiritual vehicles, shravakayana, bodhisattva yana, and so forth and so on. If you're really engaging with this, then for you to have the karma to engage with this text, you've already got an enormous amount of momentum. Now, there are people who will just kind of bump into it, and they'll bump, bump off like throwing a ping-pong ball against a wall. And the ping-pong ball engages with the wall, but just boing, and then it goes off and it never comes back again. So there will be people who in encounter the text. But he said if they're not ripe, he said the text will be right in front of them, their, their, their minds will be miles away. And that is, they'll have a semblance of having encountered the text. But it will be complete surface. Nothing will go in water off a duck's back and all that kind of thing. So it'll look like, maybe they even talk about it and so forth, but frankly, they're clueless. That it looks like encounter, they didn't really. But if you really encounter it, and he said this simple point, if you encounter the teaching of the Vajra essence, brief allusion to preliminary practices and then right into shamatha, then vipassana, and on the fast track, tektrut and tutgel, he said if you encounter these teachings 
and you have faith in them. He's not saying you're really stupid if you don't have faith or you're going to go to hell if you don't have faith. He doesn't say anything of the sort. He just says, if you do have faith. If you don't, there's lots of other teachings. Lots and lots of other teachings that are perfectly good. But he says, if you encounter the teachings of the Vajra essence, and faith really does arise, a sense of confidence, a sense of aspiration, conviction, he said, then you're ready. Then you're ready. He said, don't look, you don't need to look for any other signs. If you've encountered it, you've engaged with it, and out of that engagement, it stirs the, feeds, the, the seeds of faith. And of course, when I'm speaking of faith, it's not just, okay, now I believe this, that, and the other thing. No, it's, it's not just dogma. It's not just belief as in creed. A lot of people believe a lot of stuff and never live, be, live by it. So what's the big deal with that? Who cares? No, this is faith of aspiration. This is faith of inspiration, faith of really wishing to devote, devote oneself to practice and feeling, yeah, really feeling confidence in it. That's the faith he's talking about. And he says, if you feel such faith, then know you have all the, all the prerequisites. That's enough. You've encountered it, you've engaged with it, you have faith, then don't look for anything else. That's enough. And then let nothing hold you back. Just go for it. Go for it. Because these teachings here are enough. He says at the end of the text, if you're looking to achieve rainbow body in this lifetime, you don't need to look for anything outside of this text. You don't need any other teachings outside of this text. What he doesn't say is don't look outside of this text because I'm sectarian. I believe only my, my path is true. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what he does say is this is enough. This is enough. Everything you need is right here if this is the path you want to follow and you have faith in it. And then he makes this, this point, and it will be my final point. He said that consider that the teachings of spending three countless eons might not be literal might not be literal because you consider you know, that much continuity he's, it's, so he's not refuting it he just says consider here right now all the causes and conditions have come together for you to follow a path that can lead to enlightenment in one lifetime is now really the time to think about countless eons and how much better do you think the circumstances will be in the future than what you have right now in this lifetime? And if you have faith, then don't have any second thoughts about whether you're qualified or not. You are. Now get to it. And if you don't want to, that's fine. So there's no threats. There's no threats. Oh, you, something bad's going to happen. But if you want to, doors open. It's up to you. Very simple. So as you envision your own well-being. Let it loose. Let your imagination free. Let's practice. And now with much, much fewer words.
Settle your body, speech, and mind in their natural states. Now, as if for the first time, envision your own flourishing, hedonically, eudaimonically, what would truly bring you happiness and fulfillment.
with every out-breath, breathe life, breathe light into that vision. In the beginning of each phase, you may let the meditation be discursive, arousing thoughts. But as that aspiration truly arises, first for yourself and eventually for others, then you can leave the discursive thoughts behind and simply sustain that heartfelt aspiration quietly, non-discursively. And in this way you begin to fuse the practice of shamatha with the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. Envision what would you love to receive from the world around you. Hedonically, eudaimonically. To enable you to realize your heart's desire. Imagine it.
with every in-breath arouse the yearning. May I receive all that I truly need. Continue with the practice discursively until it flows spontaneously, this aspiration for your own well-being. And then continue non-discursively, imagining it to be so. In order to realize your heart's desire, in what ways would you love to transform as a human being? Free of what qualities, imbued with what qualities? Envision it in an act of loving kindness for yourself. With each outbreath, arouse that aspiration that it may be so, and imagine it. 
as if you were letting your mind slip into the future of your choice. Imagine this transformation, this spiritual evolution taking place here and now, as if you were in a time machine, moving ahead in the direction of your choice. <clears throat> Finally, in order to imbue your own life with the greatest possible meaning, the greatest fulfillment for yourself, what would you love to offer to the world around you, to those near and far, in the short term and the long term?
every out-breath, breathe out life into this vision. And imagine it becoming true now. Let your awareness come to rest in its own nature. The very wellspring of genuine happiness.
Nelson? I've got a question for you. When does one fail in the meditative practice of shamatha? At what time does that occur? When do you fail? When you're practicing shamatha, at what point can you say, I failed? When you give up. That's exactly it. There isn't any other right answer. It's when you give up. Then, you can go to your teacher and say, Teacher, have I failed? The answer is, yep, you have. <laughs> you are not accomplishing shamatha. You have failed. You can stop failing any time you like, but you have failed. Because you will not achieve it. If you give up, you won't achieve it. It's not going to happen just by getting lucky. There's no shamatha lottery. And until one has failed every session, when you're simply doing your best, doing the practice, applying the antidotes, doing your best from moment to moment to be as sane as you can, relaxed, composed, and clear. You're achieving shamatha. Right? And the same is true for the four measurables. When have you failed? Same answer. Bodhicitta. When have you failed in practicing or achieving bodhicitta? When you, when you give up. And, of course, to, to um, take the analogy, when has a farmer failed to cultivate a field of wheat? When he walks away and says, ah, the heck with it. <laughs> Waiting too long. Three months is way too long. I want my wheat right now, and I'm going to go buy a hamburger. You know, there's buns. And so that's when you fail, when you give up. Until then, you've never failed. So we come back to Sisu all the way through. Sisu until enlightenment. Uh, here's a question. I th um, just re just read it now. If, if the group votes for guided meditations, yep. um, and we have guided meditations of the four measurables with you as a specific topic, could we have a specific topic like people suffering from hunger or war, global warming, and so forth? Uh, we could, but I'd rather leave that up to you. I think it's a little bit more guidance than I'd like to give. Um, we're all we're all savvy. We're all literate. We're all aware of what's going on in the world. I don't think you need me to guide you to remind you that they're hungry people and they're so forth. 24 years or older, we all know what's going on in the world, and there's plenty of grounds for compassion. So I'd rather let it just be very individual. And then that's where you can come to. Okay, maybe your choice. Your choice. Maybe one day really focusing on just poverty. People just barely scrimping by on $1 a day. It's like 30% of the world population. One dollar a day, you know. What happens if they get sick? What happens at one dollar a day? I mean, so you don't need any commentary from me. One day for that. Or you might go through the classics, aging, sickness, and death, and have one for each one. So you break it up like that. And then it doesn't get stale. It doesn't get stale. And likewise for the loving kindness, that we're wishing, we're wishing for people to find the happiness that they seek. And as long as it's not unwholesome, um, this came up in a conversation with one of you one-on-one. -on -one. But bear in mind, when Gautama left home, he'd won the samsara lottery. I mean, in India, what more do you want? I mean, he was going to be a king. He was a crown prince. He had a gorgeous wife. He had a healthy baby. He had a harem, you know. And he had stuff, lots and lots of stuff. So, I mean, really, in India, 25, what more could you want? If you're a man, a woman, you might want something else a little bit. You know, he, he had it all. And so samsara really had nothing more to offer to him as a human being. And seeing that it was empty, then he left and he didn't, he didn't look back. There are, many, there are many other cases of monks who, oh, Nanda, 
Nanda, his cousin, I'm quite sure. Nanda, not Ananda, but Nanda. And the Buddha basically lured him away from his bride. He had just gotten married. Apparently she was quite a, quite, a, quite a gorgeous girl. And he really was very, very attracted to her. You know? And he's thinking, years of sex. You know? And the Buddha came to his home on an alms round. And then he was given food. And then Buddha gave Nanda his bowl to carry. And then Buddha went back to the monastery or to the forest, wherever they were staying. And Nanda was there. He says, Be back soon, sweetie. <laughs> you know, he's carrying the Buddha's bowl. What are you going to do? Drop it or say you carry it? You know, he's got a lot of reverence for the Buddha, and so he really, if he's going to be courteous, he's got no choice. So he's carrying the Buddha's bowl full of you know the food, and the Buddha takes him out there to all the other monks and. Says, well, Nanda, welcome. Would you like to become a monk? Something like that. It's not a direct quote, but it's very close. And Nanda, <laughs> okay. And all he could think about was the gorgeous babe that he just left behind. You know, he really wanted to go back. So the story goes on from there. But you know, but if you've already had everything, that makes it easier. So the, the moral of the story is, people when they're really, really hoping that something will deliver, you know, whether it's money, or it's a car, it's a, their own house. It, it, it is true, isn't it, that if you own your own house, it just makes you a lot happier? Because I've never owned my own house, but I, I've heard that if you own your own house, it's just much better than renting, right? Just level of happiness just generally goes up, right? No. Ah, oh, shucks, then maybe I don't need to wait for that one. So there it is, you know, but if you can fulfill it until you really do get thoroughly disillusioned. But if, you're, but if you're really not there and you really see there's hope and you really have your hope there, you've invested yourself, I've only got a, a, a bicycle, but I could have one of those really cool motorbikes because you can see people riding them are really happy. And I, if I had one of those motorbikes, that's to be so much happier than having a bicycle. Then it's better they have a motorbike because you probably won't persuade them to achieve shamatha when what they really want is a motorbike, right? Olasa. So, so that's that. Here's an interesting one. Uh, I want to be 100% free. I want to be 100% free of OCDD and compulsive rumination. They're basically the same. However, it seems like a lot of my creative ideas and useful thoughts come from rumination. Bear in mind, it's only recently, I think in the last 10, 20 years, that rumination has turned into a dirty word. Uh, for a long time, I mean, it's, it's a good, good, solid English word. I don't know what the etymology is, but it doesn't, by definition, I bet you if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, you won't find just one string of negative definitions, like rumination sucks. To ruminate upon something was to be simply to reflect upon it at length. What are you ruminating upon? The Second World War, I wonder how that developed, what were the causes, what were the outcomes, I'm ruminating. It just means to contemplate. Nowadays, recently, it's been appropriated, co-opted, so ruminating, you know, in this very specific school of psychology or kind of genre psychology, it's considered negative. Uh, and so that's fine. L language mutates. I'm not grumping. But we should know that it wasn't always that way. And so, but sometimes in, when the mind just starts going to free flow, a lot of ideas start coming out. Some of them are useful, you know, like gold miners. You go out there to the, to the, to the stream and you, you go zhu, 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 with your little pan and you're getting lots and lots of sand and then once in a while a, a gold nugget comes up. You know, it does. I mean, if you're in the right stream. 
And so, what, so here's the question. Is there a benign form of directed rumination? Yeah, it's called thinking. And if so, what differentiates it from OCDD? Well, it's the obsessive compulsive delusional component. Right? But this is a good question. It's not a silly question in any way. Uh, so, but first of all, the OCDD, and, the, and, the, and just by the way, in case you thought I, just, I did make up that little, uh, that little acronym and the, the deal, but it's Vikalpa in Sanskrit. Vikalpa. And it's both in Sanskrit and in Vikalpa. I think it's in Pali also, but I know in Sanskrit it's Vikalpa. Or in Tibetan, Namdo. Namdo. Namdo also means, in colloquial Tibetan, superstition or some dumb, unfounded idea. Namdo kuchi. That's just, a, that's just a numdo. Give me a break, you know. So it's just one stupid idea. Like, oh, see if I can think of one. I know spiritual experiences originate from deep inside the brain. <laughs> that's a numdo. That's really a stupid idea. So, finish with that one. And so when you're practicing any form of shamatha, for example, and sometimes a really bright idea comes up. I have mentioned this in the past, something really valuable. You, you, you have in, in, indeed come up with a gold nugget. A lot of sand for sure, but sometimes a gold nugget comes up. It could be artistic, it could be musical, it could be a business plan, it could be an architectural design, it could be poetry, it could be an insight into dharma that's not related to shamatha, some insight pertaining to bodhicitta or what have you. It does happen. Bear in mind as you're settling deeper and deeper, it's as, as if little shafts of light are poking down into your substrate consciousness and into the, into the substrate, which is a very, very large repository of past knowledge, experience, insights, and so forth. So practically speaking, with, and I could go on and on on this point, but now to wrap it up, on occasion, it's because uh, I've, I've had this experience too, and I have mentioned it in the past when I went into one six-month retreat, a lot of the ideas that, that appeared in my book, The Taboo of Subjectivity, came out unwanted, unsolicited, but they just came out, and so it was like a meteor shower, a meteor shower. And it would happen, and I wasn't asking questions. It, it wasn't asking questions. Sometimes it would just happen, and I'd say, oh, gee, that's, that's a really good one. That's a really good one, too. Oh, that's a, oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good one. That would go in Chapter 3. Oh, there's that Chapter 4. Yeah, that would really fit, you know? And so, um, so what you can do, practically speaking, it's cost-benefit analysis. On occasion, if you have a really good meteor shower, and you see the stuff coming up is really valuable, then what, what you can do, and I've done it, I hardly ever do it anymore, but I have done it, is have a piece of paper right next to your, where you're, whether you're supine or sitting, have it right next to there, a pencil, and if you're just in the midst of it, or you kind of think it's likely, maybe it's meteor shower time, then a really bright idea comes up, then break, break your session for 15 seconds. Write down just enough that you'll remember it afterwards, and put it down and say, okay, finished. Then you don't have to hold it. Because otherwise you will probably want to hold it. And then you're going to screw up the rest of your session holding on to, I don't want to forget this one. This was really good. Don't want to forget. Don't want to forget. So it's going to louse it up anyway. So it's cost-benefit analysis. And you might find sometimes you just tap into kind of a reservoir, like a vein of gold, that just kind of percolates up a lot of really cool ideas that are really useful you know, for running a Dharma center. That's not shamatha, but it may be very useful. And it might be more useful to write down ideas about how you could develop a Dharma center. And there could be much more benefit and so forth and so on. It might be worth having a pretty, how do you say, choppy one session in terms of shamatha. Well, not that great, but now you've got, you got half, a, half a dozen ideas you can take to the board of your Dharma center and a lot of benefit comes. So, so play it is. We're always looking for that middle way. 
not just writing down any, any piece of junk that comes up, thinking maybe it'll be good for the future sometime, <laughs> and not being so rigid that we say, no, no, I'm a shaman practitioner. Buzz off good ideas. Okay. Ah, that one hasn't gone yet. Let's see what this one was. So here's again, very, very uh, practical about shamatha. Is, is achieving shamatha the same as achieving perfect recollection? No. No, it's not. But there are some interesting things to be said about that, so I will respond a little bit more. Uh, you achieve the power of recollection, and I, I'll just stick with the, the more standard translation, mindfulness, which of course you know means recollection too. Uh, but you achieve the power of uh, mindfulness in terms of the nine stages when you get to the fourth stage, because from that point onwards you never, barring really you know, odd circumstances, overall in your normal session, you just don't completely forget the object. In, in, during meditation. So the power of mindfulness, the power of not forgetting, is there. Okay? It's spotty. It's, it's terrible in stage one. It's pretty crummy in stage two. It's not bad in stage three. And then by stage four, it's really quite good. Now, it will get better and better, but in terms of completely forgetting, well, you've achieved the power of mindfulness. So there's that point. But now when you do chi of chamata, and I'll draw from two sources here, asanga and dujumlingba. So, Asanga, very, very major, contemplative scholar of the Mahayana tradition, 5th century or so. Uh, he commented, and, and Tsongkhapa, this is from Tsongkhapa's citations of Asanga, uh, when you come to the actual achievement of shamatha, then what happens to your mindfulness? Well, bear in mind, mindfulness does mean, does mean recollection. So, Tsongkhapa is teaching this in a very common way in the Tibetan tradition, focusing on a Buddha image. Well, this means for the whole course of the nine stages, you've been doing your best not to forget the Buddha image that you are holding in mind, not forgetting it, and then sustaining that, then sustaining it with a finer and finer grain. So you're not even having these little brief lapses, you know, that look like medium excitation and subtle excitation, which in fact is a complete departure, but a very short time. You're fine-tuning it. You're getting higher and higher temporal resolution. Right? So it's smoother and smoother, which is giving you better and better, re better resolution. And so until finally, all, all subtle laxity is history, subtle excitation is gone, you've achieved eighth stage, ninth stage, voila, you achieve shamatha. The big signs occur, and there you've achieved shamatha. And what do you do then? And then you release the image. It's done its work. The reverence for the Buddha continues, of course, but now, right now, releasing that particular image, you let it go and you, you release mindfulness. You release mindfulness. Now, does this mean you become mindless? You start having a distracted mind? No, you're, you're over it. It's like you've been cured of TB. You're, you're free of TB. You don't, you're no longer ill at all. So you're free of you know, distraction and all of that as long as you're in, in, in session. But I think his point here is, number one, you're, you've severed the rope of mindfulness, that's the common metaphor, the rope of your awareness attached to the Buddha image, you sever it, allow the image to vanish, you settle it in that subtle continuum, and now you're ready to do either to achieve the first jhana, the actual state of the first jhana, or to practice vipassana bodhicitta and really get onto the path. So he speaks of then being in a state which is devoid of mindfulness, which again cannot possibly mean that you're forgetting that you're practicing anything silly like that. But it, what it does mean, I think, this is now my interpretation. My interpretation is, if we bear in mind that smriti, the Sanskrit term, primarily means recollection, at this point you're not recollecting anything. 
You've gone non-discursive, non-conceptual. You're in the present moment with extraordinary bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. You're there hovering in the immediacy of the present moment. And you're doing so effortlessly. So what on earth do you need to remember? You're not remembering anything. And therefore, there's no mindfulness. You're just in a state of meditation, in meditative equipoise. And then you can start doing things if you like. So there's that. And then from Jujum Lingba, very interesting. Now, this is coming in from a very different vector. This is straight Dzogchen approach to settling the mind in its natural state. Very clear. But when he describes this, and it's in there in the, in the first 30 pages, and next year, next spring, Wisdom Publications will publish uh, the, those first 30 or so pages of the Vajra Essence with my commentary. So it's a pretty good-sized book, like 300 pages, really unpacking those first 30 pages all about shamatha. It's the, the root text is, is just mind-blowing. It's, it's fabulous. And I've just tried to make it clear. hope I have not just muddied the waters. But Wisdom will publish it in any case. And so, for better or worse, uh, but when he talks about the, your, your mind dissolving, and it's, it's as the, ordinary, the, the mind of an ordinary being dissolves, as it were. So your psyche is gone, and it's dissolved into substrate consciousness. And at that point, he says the same thing. The cord of mindfulness is cut. It's cut. So he comes to the same point. Same point. So... Mindfulness, it turns out to be, also is a tool. I've read somewhere that some Buddhist masters have been... Oh, yeah, here's the... Here's the okay. <laughs> Welcome to um, La, La Brea Tar Pits, Alan. Would you like to step in? La Brea Tar Pits is some tar pits right on the edge of Los Angeles where dinosaurs slipped in and just basically never left. So this is my, my invitation to La Brea Tar Pits. I have read somewhere that some Buddhist masters have been advised to find themselves a consort in order to prolong their life. Why is this so? Does it apply only to men or to women as well? Oh, I want to jump into that question for sure. <laughs> so I can tell you, I don't know many cases of this sort, but this is not a, it's not a silly question. Um, why it comes up at this point is another question. <laughs> exactly, who did you have in mind? Um, no, the, but the story is Dingo Kenze Rinpoche. And Dingo Kenze Rinpoche was identified as an extraordinary tuku, very, you know, as a child. And I think, I don't remember the exact, but I think about the age of 14 or so, give or take a year, he, he had this enormous aspiration, focus on meditation. And I believe it was from about the age of 14 to 27, absolute yogi, living in caves, austere, living like Milarepa. Incredible. You know, just boom. And then, when he was about 27, his, fa his health, his physical health, was really failing. And everybody knew he was a great tuku. This was the real McCoy. And the last thing you want of a tuku is that they have a short life. And he's only 27. And so some lama, and it would have been one of the great lamas, I mean, incredible clairvoyance and all of that. Some lama checked out, okay, what's going on? Here you are 27, and you, you're, you're really seriously ill. You're critically ill. This could kill you. And so he checked. And he saw, this is the story I read years ago, that um, for you, it's, it's actually important. It, you, should, you should have a wife. You, have a ha you should have a consort. Your life will be much longer. And you wind up living a very long life. But this is important for the sake of your health, your longevity. You should have a consort, a.k.a. wife. He was his wife for the rest of their lives together. And so he did. 
and he did indeed live an enormously fruitful life, but that was what some great lama told him, and he followed the advice. So it's not spurious, there's no, no joking about that, but it's one great lama speaking to another great, great lama, and what I was thinking is here, upon hearing that, I can just imagine somebody coming, some man coming to me in, over the next week for the private interview and saying, I need a consort. <laughs> and you can count on me. I'll give you a cough drop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hope I dodged that Labrea tar pits successfully. Are all Buddhist monks from all schools supposed to be celibate? Uh, in it all depends on how you're using the word monk. If the monk means either a novice uh, or a, a fully ordained monk, a bhikshu, bhikshu or bhikkhu in Pali, the answer is yes, absolutely yes. And it's not only being celibate, it means just not involved in any type of sexual activity at all. Nothing. No physical contact with a woman at all that's motivated by desire, period. You don't even shake hands with desire. Nothing. Now, a person like His Holiness, uh, you know, women are often coming up to embrace him, and he's, he, he understands this is the Western custom, so he embraces them right back. Um, he's, a, he's an impeccable, immaculate monk, so it's fine. And he's also a great bodhisattva. So in a case like that, in Theravada countries, I just advise everyone, all women, men okay, but hugging's not a big deal. It's really not part of the culture in traditional Asian cultures anyway. Man and wife, yeah, but apart from that, I, I virtually never hug any Asian woman. That's just not part of their culture. And I'm a friendly guy, but, and I like hugging women. But not Asian women, it's not part of their culture, right? And so, so, a, so a Buddhist monk will avoid all physical contact at all that's motivated by desire, uh, period, let alone you know, actual physical sexual intercourse. Uh, that's for both novices as well as for fully ordained monks. Now, in the Zen tradition, and again, I'm talking about East Asian Buddhism, about which I have only intellectual knowledge and not very deep. I mean, I've bumped into it. Some centuries ago, the word Meiji, the M-E-I-J-I, -I, the Meiji era, comes to mind. But again, I'm on really thin ice here. But th there was some point, I think it was top-down, I think it was governmental. They there was a decision that they really didn't want the Buddhist vinya, tracing back to the Buddha himself and the, and the monastic rules that he set forth, uh, they didn't want that. Somebody decided, not for us. We're Japanese. We don't need this Indian import. And so they pretty much scuttled that. And so there are, are there Zen monks? Absolutely, yes. Zen roshis, of course, of course. But by and large, they don't have vinya. If you ask them, what, what are you, a novice or are you a bhikshu? The answer is neither one. Neither one. Are there roshis? So, uh, and let's, um, and, uh, let's put, the, put the bar high. Are there accomplished, not some flaky guy, but accomplished Zen Roshis who really are very committed to Dharma, deeply devoted to practice, maybe even have some genuine realization. Are there Zen Roshis, Zen priests, who have wives? The answer is yes. Often, classically speaking, they'll be celibate for much of their lives, and then when they get to be middle-aged or what have you, 40, 40, 50, something like that, they're already totally, absolutely dedicated to Dharma. They're accomplished, and they find it helpful for their practice to have a wife and they'll often have a wife. This is, we're really now up to our neck in Japanese culture. This is not Buddhism, this is Japanese culture. They're not incompatible, 
but they're different. Just like Tibetan culture is not Tibetan Buddhism, American culture is not American Buddhism. And so there's no vow, vow of celibacy, although I do know two Western Roshis in Oregon, and they told me, unless, I, unless my memory falters here, they told me of one monastery that they knew in Japan where they had everything. They had vinya, and there were monks that took vinya ordination, strict, and they had all of the stages, and then, and then culminating in Zen. And they actually had Vajrayana there too. It sounded like a spectacular monastery. So I'd like to know more about it. It would be interesting to visit one day. Uh, so that's that. So Vinaya-based, going back to the Buddhist teachings on monastic discipline, novices and fully ordained monks are strictly and absolutely celibate. And of course, it's heterosexual or homosexual. It doesn't make any difference. If you do engage in either one, you've broken your vows. Big time. Big time. So it's streng verboten. If this were in German, we say streng verboten. Strictly forbidden. Um, in Mongolia, they've had... My wife has, knows a lot about Mongolia. I've been there just once. She's been there a lot. Uh, they went through uh, a terrible ordeal uh, when dominated by the, the communists uh, under the era of Stalin, about 1938 or so. There were, what was it? 1,000 monasteries. Oh, it was a large number. 1,000 monasteries, 100,000 monks, maybe it was more than that. There was a lot of Buddhism there. During the Stalin era, they demolished almost all the monasteries. They killed 30,000 monks, just lined them up and shot them dead, and basically forced the others to give, back, give up their, you know, go back and become farmers or what have you. So it was just one more genocide. It was actually the first one. Uh, the Soviets did it first, and then the, the Chinese communists thought that would be a great idea, and they did it big time in China and in Tibet. And so, but I'm just referring to Mongolia. Um, so they got absolutely smashed by the communists. It was, it was a spiritual, religious genocide. And then when they were freed, when the, with the falling of the Soviet Empire, then Mongolia also became free. They are a completely independent country. This is outer Mongolia. Inner Mongolia is sucked up into, the, up in, into China. Outer Mongolia. So it's an independent country. Um, but as they, they've been re trying to revitalize Buddhism there, and I say this only with sympathy, uh, it's been really a tough road to hoe for the monks. Really, really hard. Even now, there's hardly any, any place for monks to stay. There's a monastery, but then there's no place for them to stay. So they have to stay back with their parents or stay someplace else. They hardly have any benefactors. So it's really, really tough there. Even now, even now, it's very difficult because there's so little support for them financially and so few places for them to stay. So there was a period there in the, the 90s and the first decade of the, of the present century when a fair number of these monks... What can one say? They thought they were monks, um, but they would hang out in karaoke bars, some of them. Karaoke bars, they'd have girlfriends, they'd have, wa they'd have a wife, they'd have a kid, and they'd be walking around in monastic robes that they, they would put on when they went to the monastery, and then go home and be with a wife and kid. And there's nothing wrong with being devoted to Dharma and having a wife and child, or a husband and a child, but it's... And then they would say, well, we're Mongolian Buddhists. We're Mongolian Buddhists. We don't need to be celibate. Well then they shouldn't take vows of celibacy. Because if you take vows as a, of a novice or a fully ordained monk, it's not negotiable. So if you don't want to be celibate, don't become a monk. It's a pretty easy deal. Okay. So, but they're, they're moving ahead. They're recognizing and we, there are a number of Tibetan, Tibetan monks uh, teaching in Mongolia nowadays. And they tend to be, and all the good ones are strictly celibate. The bad ones are bad ones. Um, so they're gradually moving slowly, a bit more support from the laity. 
and more of them are becoming, I, I, know, I know of some who are very, very good, strictly, I mean, they're good monks, they keep their precepts, that's a good monk. And so there's a growing number, but of course it depends on the support from the lay, lay community. So that's that. There's some left over, but I'd like to stop reading. Anything coming up from the practice? We have 10 minutes or so. Yes, Brett, what's up? I had a question about uh, cultivating uh, the empathetic joy. Yeah. Um, and I think some of your comments at the beginning of this session uh, helped clarify some things. But uh, I was attending to people and if trying to generate people. this you know, right. kind of review of my life and interactions with people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, what came out of it was not joyful, actually. I, it got really sad, you know, just about how much of my life has been separated from what I call true happiness and more of a sort of a grasping, nasty for, happiness. For, your, for yourself. Yeah, for myself. Uh -huh. And true. also just even in the gifts other people give me. You know, yeah. it's kind of all like, and so mm -hmm. that surprised me, you know, because I thought, I, I guess I was a little bit expecting like, hey, now we're going to be joyful, right? Yeah. And I got the opposite. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a discovery, I guess, you know, and a lot of, yeah. a lot of what we do in the, in the uh, four measurables seems to be more of a um, developmental practice. We're like, I know I hate my neighbor. Yeah. I'm going to work on not hating my neighbor, yeah. you know. Exactly. But this was more like uh, a discovery. Where I, and I don't know how to proceed from there in, in this practice. Is my practice over at that point? Should I do something different? Or, yeah. you know, it seemed like it seemed to be off track for, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't know how to proceed. No, I understand, sure. Um, practice, can, a, a single practice in one meditative session uh, can start out one way and then take a turn. You may start out with uh, settling the mind. I just, I'm, I'm going to ramble a little bit, but I think, I think it'll be still on target. And that is, you may start out a session with settling the mind. And then just finding that your eyes started starting to hurt and feel some pressure building up in the forehead and thinking, you know, I'm not going to go here. This, th these are red lights. These are orange lights. No, thank you. And I'm going to go back to my belly. Rise and follow the abdomen. I'm out of here. Well, that was wise. You don't just say, hey, I said 24 minutes. I mean it. Sisu. Dumb Sisu. <laughs> I'm going to be really dumb Sisu. <laughs> Never give up. <laughs> well, never give up until it's time to give up because it's stupid, <laughs> right? And so there's one example. Likewise, you started off in empathetic joy. Well, all of the four immeasurables are aroused by attending to some facet of reality, some facet of reality, including a world of potential is a world of Potential reality, that, that there is a world of potential. I do have the potential right now to raise my right arm. Didn't happen, but it could have. <laughs> that really was a potential. <laughs> it's true. And so, the, but it, it's all very selective. So when we're cultivating loving kindness, we're, we're focusing on one aspect of reality that will arouse that. Again, consider you know, the surface, oh, she's purdy. There's surface, surface, and then, oh, she's selfish. And then go deeper, oh, she's like me. Then go deeper, oh, she's empty of inherent existence. All, they could be all right. All of those may be true. You know, on a, on a particular film clip, yeah, here she was selfish, and here she was really pretty, and here she's, boy, do I see a kindred soul, you know, and yep, empty of inherent nature. It's all, you know, which, which aspect of reality do you want to focus on now, right? 
And so he started out in empathetic joy, but there was a kind of a ripple. And instead of attending to your virtues, your successes, your joys, or those of other people, it kind of got bumped into another aspect of reality. Another aspect of reality. Well, why are you attending to that, attending to those aspects, which are a bit disillusioning, dis, dis, disillusioning but also, as you commented, really a matter of self-discovery, of self-knowledge, and that, that's got to be a good thing. Not always pleasant, but it's got to be a good thing, better than self-ignorance. Uh, it got bumped over there. Then you got two options. You can say, you know, there's a time for that, but I actually chose to, to focus on cultivation of empathy joy right now, so I'll get back to you later, but not right now, thanks. And go back and get back on track on what you chose. But sometimes maybe the momentum's too strong. And it's going back, and this seems, this is not just being depressed or going into negative rumination. There's a discovery here, and maybe I should pay attention to it because I should be aware of this, you know? Um, in which case, you're, in that session, your practice of empathetic joy is stopped. And then just to take, take account of this, to bring, direct the eye of wisdom to whatever you're attending to, to recognize whatever you're attending to, that it's not you, they are events, they are modes of behavior, they're mental afflictions, they're ways of interacting with others, and so forth. None of those are people. You're a person, but none of those are people. And so if one sees a certain tendency there that had never been quite so clear, then that might be a really good point at which to feel, to arouse, since it's already happening spontaneously, a sense of remorse. I hadn't noticed that before. Uh, this happens in a very, uh, how do you say, very meaningful spousal relationships and friendships, uh, spousal a good spousal relationship is a friendship, and there are many friendships that are obviously not romantic or spousal. But this is what good friends are for. It doesn't have to be spousal. Just say friendship is a broader category. But good friends, where there's a lot of trust and affection and mutual respect, those three qualities. Um, I'm very good friends with my wife. She's my wife, but she's also very good friends. And on occasion, she pointed out things to me, pointed out things to me in my own behavior that I wasn't aware of. She just sees it from another perspective. And I know she loves me. She's not there just to beat me up. And I listened to her and said, oh, I hadn't been aware of that. Thank you. And when I hear it, it's not pleasant. She knows she's telling me something that's not good news. But she's given, telling me you might want to pay attention to this. Right? And, of course, my wife, well, my llamas. That's what they're there for. Not just to give us a pat on the back and go, Alan, you're great. You know, It's nice to have inspiration and encouragement, but frankly, some... Eye-opening criticism can be really helpful at times. And my lamas have generally been not bashful about that at all. You know? mm -hmm. Thank goodness. So then there's a time for that. Pick it up, then put it down, and then move on. Where we can get bogged down is then in this really negative rumination that psychologists write about so much nowadays, and with good reason. We keep on going back to it, back to it. It's kind of like pulling us in. Then it can just turn into a bad habit. Uh, to look at it, to attend to it, if it's a mode of behavior that is worthy of remorse, because it's really best not to replicate it ever again if we can, then to feel that remorse sufficiently that one has really taken it in, if one has really harmed other people through one's behavior, if one has really harmed, then it's important to dwell on that. And this is rumination in, the, in a good old-fashioned sense. Reflect on that at length. See the damage you've done. You might not have noticed it before. It's easy not to because we get caught up in I, me, mine all the time. But look, this really hurts people when you do that. 
and, and reflect on that. Let your mind dwell there. Go into a bit of shamatha on how this really makes people feel bad and, and feel that empathy with them, sympathy. And then you can step back and say, but I'm not here in this life to make feel people feel bad. That's antithetical to what I want my life to be about. And I got it, and I don't want to do that anymore. And then, there, I mean, there are all four remedial powers, but the fourth one is this, you know, absolute resolve. I get it. I really get it. And I'm going to bear... The, and this is where mindfulness comes in. Real Buddhist mindfulness, and not this flat version that so often gets pawned off. You know, no judgment, no judgment. Um, discerning wise judgment. Hey, let's get real here. And remembering to maintain wise discerning judgment. And when one feels an impulse, because the impulse will probably still be there. We have habits. An impulse may come up to, for the same behavior and to remember prospectively and then when it happens, recognizing what happens. Here's an old impulse. And I've recognized it was really harmful in the past. It hurt people. And here's the same impulse and I can do it all over again. But with prospective memory, that's where the resolve comes in. If I ever feel this impulse again, and I probably will, I'm going to recognize it. And having recognized it, I'm not going to follow it. And I might actually do, do something diametrically opposed. I may arouse another attitude, other thoughts, other imagination, to really meet it head on and crunch it, beat the life out of it. So that impulse, it gets really smashed, humiliated. You know? And not just be, oh, it's coming up again. You know, as if that's all there is to dharma. It's so it's such numbskull dharma to think that all there is is to just be aware of what's coming up and just say, oh, what can you do? You know, I'm not I'm not saying anybody actually teaches it in such a dumb fashion. That's kind of a cartoon, but there's a cartoon that is really flat and superficial. So it's discerning, intelligent judgment, recognizing what is harmful, what is not harmful, what is beneficial, what's not beneficial. Cultivate one and abandon the other. And that's pretty much the whole of the Buddhist teachings. Oh, and subdue the mind. Right. That little thing, too. Good. All right. So let's enjoy dinner. See you tomorrow morning.